I am super excited this morning. Um, I am not preaching. That's not necessarily why I'm super excited this morning. Maybe you're super excited this morning that I'm not preaching, but um, I don't know, a number of months ago, uh, Greg Barshaw, who many of you know, uh, is overseas um, Connect to Ministries, which is uh, our partner that we partner with going to Haiti. Some of you have been to Haiti. And um, Greg, every once in a while, we have him come, and I give him a measly 10 minutes to talk about what is God doing in Haiti. And after a while, I thought, you know what? 10 minutes is not enough. Um, and, uh, and, and as well, part of that is that Greg has a heart that gives you the big picture of how God works in the world through his sovereignty and suffering and things that, that you will learn when you go to Haiti that I said, Greg, can you bring that back here so we can appreciate that? And so, in fact, Greg, would you come up and join me? Everybody say good morning to Greg. But one of the things I want to say about Greg, and I don't want to embarrass him, is that obviously he, he leads a great ministry uh, that God has been blessing in Haiti and partners there with a lot of local churches. And uh, But one of, what impressed me most about uh, Greg is not his ministry resume, but it's who he is as a person. Um, there's a few people in my life that the more I get to know them, the more I, I, I am not saying that Greg is Jesus and Greg would admit that he's not Jesus either. But there's certain people that I've met that and Greg's one of those that that the more you get to know them, the more that who they are reflects the character of who Jesus is. And Greg's one of those people. If you get to spend some time with him, talk to him and see him, you realize, okay, that guy gets it. That guy knows Jesus so much so that it's gotten in him and through him and he demonstrates who Jesus is in his way, in his life in a way that, that many of us haven't quite got there yet. So thank you for your your following Jesus and your humble approach to ministry and everything. I appreciate you and love you. Thank you. So, appreciate right, it, We John. just had a moment. Now we can move on, all right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, it's uh, definitely a pleasure to be here and to share with you. Uh, I'm not usually speaking to so many white people, um, so give me a little chance to acclimate here. Um, but what an incredible opportunity to come and to share with you what God is doing in Haiti. Um, and you are so much a part of that. We have uh, just opened an orphanage a few months ago and now have 83 children that are, that are rescued from slavery. Can you imagine that? 83 kids. We have 300,000 slave children in Haiti. 300,000 slave children. And that's just a small part of the world that we live in. And... Uh, so you're a part of that, and we, we thank you for that. We're looking forward to possibly being able to build some more, rescue some more kids. But can you imagine a five-year-old comes to me, five, one of the five-year-olds that was rescued, says, if you need any help with the cooking or the washing, anything like that, feel free to ask me because I've been doing that for two years. She started at three years of age. So uh, it is such an awesome picture to see that these kids have been saved from slavery the same way Jesus has saved us from the slavery of sin. What an incredible picture. Well, I want to talk about today um, kind of a heavy topic. John talked a little bit about that. Um, and I want to start with just kind of sharing with you a picture. If we could uh, have a picture of Jefferson here. There, there are some kids, some people that have affected my life in a deep, deep way, and Jefferson is one of those. You can see Jefferson's got a few challenges in his life. I met Jefferson when uh, we have a number of programs in churches for disabled children, and this lady walked in to our program, and she had this pile of rags. She came in, and I asked her what she wanted, and she put the rags down, and she began to uncover them, and underneath these rags was Jefferson. 
She says, I cover him because if, I, if people see him public, they take pictures of him and they make fun of him and laugh at him. And I won't, I won't have that. She said, could, could you do anything with Jefferson? So we, Jefferson became part of our program, obviously has very limited abilities. Um, and because of Jefferson's involvement in that church and in that program, Jefferson's mom started to come to church and she came up to me one day and she said, this is overwhelming for me. No one has ever loved Jefferson but me. And you have. And through that process, Jefferson's mom came to Jesus. And then Jefferson, about a year ago, died. Which is an awesome thing. He's now whole. He's not like this. But Jefferson causes in me a crisis. And the crisis is, God, where, where are you in this whole process? You guys ever question that? God, you say you're merciful, you're kind, you're just, you're compassionate, you're all those things, but, but how does that show itself in Jefferson's life? If I could, I would love to uh, kind of walk you through my crisis, my emotional and my theological crisis when it came to putting our arms around suffering and struggle in this life. Started when I was uh, 20 years old, I was asked to do a short-term missions trip to East Africa. Short-term mission trip, in their mind, was three months, not a week like we do today. So I got in the plane, having no idea what I was getting myself into, get on the plane, end up in East Africa, Ethiopia, and find out that um, I'm being sent out of the six team members, I'm being sent down south. I didn't know what south meant. Show up there, and I find out that the south of Ethiopia at that time is in the middle of a famine. Hadn't rained for two years. This is an agrarian country. They live and die on rain. And at this point, they were dying. So they put me at a, at a station, a feeding station, to feed some folks. And so I just jumped in and started fixing food and giving food out and everything. And um, we started to clean up after that evening meal. Got to bed on, I don't know, probably 10, 11 o'clock, something like that. They said, be up at 2 so you can start preparing food for the next day. So I did, a uh, short amount of sleep, but felt like this is what God had called me to. And at uh, 2 o'clock, started working with the meal. And about 4.30, they told me, why don't you go out and start waking the people up and getting them ready to receive the morning meal. So I did, and I'm moving through the people, and I'm kind of shaking them, and some are responding, some are not. Sun comes up about 5.30, and uh, I am still working through the crowd, and I realize that the people that aren't moving are dead. Well, as we began to assess the whole situation, we found out that cholera had gone through the crowd at night. And those people were in such a weakened condition from starvation that once they saw the signs of starvation or saw the signs of cholera, they were dead within four hours. So there was nothing we could do. Out of the 2,000 people, we lost 1,000 people that day. Well, I'm, I'm a kid from the San Fernando Valley. You know, I, I'd never even, I've seen maybe a couple of dead people before, but this was, this was far beyond anything I'd ever seen. I'm emotionally, I'm, I'm a mess. But even more than that, theologically, I'm beginning to say, whoa. I mean, I, I'm a kid, that, VBS, I mean, if I, 
I, I live my whole life through VBS. VBS says God is loving, he's kind, he's just, he's compassionate, he's all those things. And I'm saying, Lord, what did, what did these people do? What did they do that deserve this? Are they so evil that they deserve to die? I mean, I knew a lot of pretty evil people here in the States, and they're doing just fine. So, so how do I get my mind around this? Because theologically, this is, this is not meshing for me. Obviously, we couldn't use that station anymore because of the cholera, so they moved me to another station, and it was a, it was a room similar to this, divided into, into three sections, each one based upon their level of starvation from better to worse to worse to worse. Then they had a house off on one side they called the death house. This is a place where we just ran IVs on people, trying to save them from dying. We would lose 15 out of 20 every eight hours. And we'd take the bodies, put them in the back, bring in another 20, and another 20. I did that for a few days, and man, I'm done. I'm emotionally done. I'm theologically done. And I asked, I, I got to have a break. And I walked for three days. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I drank. And I was angry. I was angry because God had done something that didn't fit my box that God was in. He wasn't just. He wasn't kind. He wasn't compassionate. What had these people done to deserve such a fate? Well, in that process of walking and talking, God sent me to a couple of passages in Scripture that, uh, that were really, really helpful and began to, to morph my perspective of who God is and what my theology was based upon. If uh, Put up on the screen Amos chapter 4. This is what it says, follow along as I read. But I gave you also cleanliness of teeth in all of your cities and lack of bread in all of your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water. But you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and caterpillars were devouring your many gardens and vineyard, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp to rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. What is God doing? What is he doing? God's greatest passion in this passage is the heart of his people. And he is willing to hurt, to remove, to, to cause crisis in order to get the heart of his people. Wow. So God is willing to do some very difficult things in order to drive me back to himself. Because his greatest value is my heart not the stuff. So I began to think theologically, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute. You mean God doesn't care about stuff? No. He didn't care about stuff. He didn't care about health. He didn't care about homes. He didn't care about cars. He didn't care about all that stuff. He is passionate for me, a relationship with me. Well, fast forward. 
December 26, 2004. Some of you will remember that day. Incredible earthquake in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Created a tsunami that ran over four different countries. Killed 267,000 people in one day. I was uh, asked if I would go and do some relief work. I've done relief work in the past, so they asked me to come. And I ended up in Thailand. Now, I'd never done tsunami work before. I'd done a other crisis before, but I had no idea what a tsunami does. I thought, oh, it's a lot of water, must drown. No. The tsunami, the, the wave in, in Thailand was 40 feet tall going 140 miles an hour. You don't run from that. It just clobbers you, and it picks up cars, and it picks up trees, and it picks up anything it can, and it drives you through that, and what you end up doing is being bludgeoned by all the stuff. Well, our job was to try to find some people alive if we could, but if we couldn't, then to recover bodies. So I spent days and days and days and days recovering bodies. Our job was to, once we recovered a body, to come back. They had turned the Buddhist temples into morgues. Our job was to clean them up, take pictures of them, put them in a refrigerator truck, and then put their picture on this bulletin board. And this bulletin board was 100 yards long of pictures of people that had been recovered. It's really hard for parents and family to recognize their people because they'd been so beat up. Well, in part of the process, the, the Red Cross asked me if I'd go out and check on some islands that were off of Thailand to do some recovery out there, so we went out there. I went to sit down in this boat next to this guy, a Thai man. He said, don't sit next to me, I'm a man with a black heart. I said, a black heart? Okay. I'm interested in that. I've had a black heart before. I went and sat down next to him. Asked him a little bit about what that was all about. And he says, well, in our belief system, we believe in reincarnation. And the process of reincarnation is you live your life better and better and better. And every time you die, you have a chance to increase in your station in life till you reach nirvana. It's a good thing. But he said, I'm, I'm so evil, I can't die. I'm stuck. I'm a man with a black heart. Well, I shared with him that there was a man who came to deal with that blackness. His name was Jesus. And he listened patiently, but he basically blew me off as, as a gentle Thai man would do. We got out to the island, and he said it was his island. And uh, so I just buddied up with him, and we started walking the island together. And we found his boat. He was a fisherman. His boat was in the middle of the island, mile from the ocean. And uh, we were able to recover some stuff out of his boat. And... I shared Jesus with him again, and once again, he was very uh, polite, but he basically blew me off. Asked him about that day, tell me your experience, and he said, I was out fishing, and I was, I'd caught my, what I needed, and I was coming in, and I looked at my island, and all the water was, was coming back from the island. He said, man, I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew it couldn't be good. So I tried to get my boat ashore. I couldn't because I was going against the tide. So I jumped in the water. I swam ashore. And as I got to the beach, I started running up the beach. And the wave hit me in the back and drove me into a tree. I hung onto that tree with everything I had. I was running out of air. So I shimmied up the tree just in time to get above the surface of the water, just in time to watch my family all swept out to sea. 21 of my relatives gone in a second. I'm the only one left for an Asian family. Family's everything. He had lost everything. 
Well, Lech became just a real burden of my heart, so I continued to have friendships with him. I was back and forth from Thailand from here to there, oh, probably eight times or so. About the fifth time, Lech came to Jesus, and it was awesome. It was awesome. To see a man who, who was carrying this black heart that represented everything in his life that had gone wrong, and to watch Jesus remove that and replace it with joy and with peace, was amazing. His countenance changed right before my eyes. It was awesome. Well, the last time I was in Thailand, I, I knew that it would probably be the last time I would be there, so I wanted to see Lek. I wanted to spend some time with him. So we had dinner together and asked Lek, so now that you know Jesus, tell me what your perception of Jesus is. What's your perception of God? He says, oh, Greg, his God is so patient and kind and gracious to me. I thought, dude, how can, you, how can you say that? God just removed your entire family from you and you say him, he's, he's kind, compassionate, and gracious? He says, yeah, Greg, but look at it this way. He said, if God had removed five of my family, that would have been difficult. I'd have been okay. Ten, I'd have been okay. Difficult yet, more. He said, God knew he knew me so well and loved me so much, and he knew at exactly what point I would break. And that's exactly where he took me. He took me there because he knew that the only hand I could reach to was the hand of Jesus. And he broke me. He says, can you imagine a God that loves me that much that he's willing to remove everything in my life for a relationship with him? That is a compassionate, loving God. So what about the 21? It's a good question, isn't it? What about those that perished? And Lex said in his wisdom that God had given him, he said, you know, Greg, he says, if God loved me that much, he loved each one of them that much too. And God brought each one of them to the same point of crisis, not the same way as me, but to a point of crisis where he, he brought them in to, to be confronted with who the reality of who Jesus is and what they decided, I don't know. But I know he loved them, and I know he brought them to the same point that he brought me to. Wow. Think about that within the reality of Las Vegas. What's God doing? Is that possibly a crisis point for some people so that Jesus might show himself? Wow. Pretty amazing. The other place that... that uh, Jesus took me was to his own words. What did Jesus say? Well, he said in Luke chapter 18, he says to the rich man, rich man comes to him and says, how must I be saved? Jesus says, well, what do your commandments say? And he said, well, I've, I've done all the commandments. I've obeyed all the commandments. And Jesus says, and there's one more thing you need to do. You need to give all your stuff away. I want you to get rid of all your wealth. What happened? The rich man left grieved because he had lots of stuff. Jesus goes on in Luke 18, and he says, it's really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Why? He's got lots of stuff. He's talking to us. We're the rich people. We got lots of stuff. He goes on and says in Matthew chapter 5, if your eye causes you to sin, I want you to pluck it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, I want you to cut it off and throw it away because it's better to go into the kingdom as a maimed individual, partial person, than it is to go as a whole man into hell. 
So Jesus says, not only is the stuff you got to get rid of, but even if parts of your body offend you, you got to get rid of those because my relationship with me is more important than anything. Wow. He goes on and he says, what's a profit a man? He gains the whole world, but he loses his soul. So you see what's happening to my theology. My theology that was built around God's justice and his compassion and his mercy based upon stuff and privilege and, and all the things we own is now being totally morphed around and pretty soon I'm beginning to understand, you know what? God doesn't care about the stuff. In fact, he will use the stuff if he has to remove it, if he has to burn it, if he has to take you through a incredible emotional crisis like like he is willing to do anything for your soul because the most important thing to Jesus is not the stuff it's the crisis of your soul which is sin wow wow I began to kind of uh, rehearse in my own head a little bit about the crises I've been a part of well in Ethiopia in the early 70s, over 200,000 people starved during that time of famine. But you know what happened to the church? It tripled, grew three times. In the south of Thailand, where I worked after the tsunami, there was not one church in the south of Thailand where the tsunami hit. Within one year, 38 churches. Wow. I'm involved in Haiti. January 12th, 2010, earthquake hits, 300,000 people die in one city. Well, before the, earth, before the, the earthquake, 80% of Haiti was Catholic slash voodoo. Now, four years later, five years later, seven years later, over two million people have come to Jesus. Wow. So I begin to see crisis a little bit different. I begin to see the... the the evils of sin that Satan and his, and his minions do on this earth are actually under the supervision of God's sovereign design to bring people to himself. Wow. Turn to Acts chapter 17. This is, a, this is an amazing passage. I love it. Paul is talking to his people in, in, uh, to the, the really smart guys in Greece. And this is what he says. Verse 24 of chapter 17. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Stop right there. Okay, so is God in control? Amen. God is totally sovereign in, in, in the entire world, so much to the point of where he puts me, where I live, when I live, and the circumstances in which I exist. Do you believe that? I do, because he said it. God is so sovereign, he determines my place, my time, my location, and my circumstances. Why? Verse 27. that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Do you get that? God predetermines a place, a time, and circumstances so that I can see the cross of Jesus the clearest. 
all of history is moving around this, this situation that God says, I want to put you in a place and a time and the circumstances that you can see the cross of Jesus because that's what drives me. That's what drives the heart of God is that I would be in a situation where I would see Jesus. Wow. Wow. I would guess, and this is, I'm just being totally out there, that if you were to connect with the spiritual community in Las Vegas, that there, be, there will be a place of where many people will come to Jesus through this whole process. Because God in his sovereignty is in this process of putting people in circumstances that they would find Jesus, and most of those circumstances are negative. He uses the, the energy of Satan against him, and people come to Jesus. Is that cool? Wow. So Jesus is in the process of taking the most ugly, disastrous, painful things of this life and using it to energize his kingdom. Wow. That's awesome. I love going into crisis situations, not because it's easy. I cry a lot. In fact, my poor son, he says, am I going to be like you when I get older, Dad? Because I cry a lot. I've seen way too, many too much death in my life, way too much, and that's painful. But in the middle of that, God is creating his kingdom. And what's the lesson in that? John talked about it this morning. We are, we are pain-averse as a people, aren't we? Headache, take a pill. Struggle, see a counselor. We have all these things because we want to do whatever we can to relieve pain. But in reality, if we run towards the pain, we find Jesus. In Philippians, Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We find intimacy in Jesus when we join him in suffering. When we run into the pain, Jesus gives us an opportunity to know him like we can know him in no other way. Wow. Wow. So if suffering is part of God's plan, then the question is, as a church, what do we do about that? Do we leave them there? Is that what God wants? For us to just ignore them and let suffering happen? Las Vegas, ah, we'll pray for them, but they're on their own. You know that today, 16,000 children will die from starvation. Today, around the world. Tomorrow, another 16,000. The next day, another 16,000. You think Jesus cares about that? I do. So what's the church do? Oh, well, we can't do anything about it. My hands in my pocket, pray in the morning, go off to work. My life doesn't change. That's not what the heart of Jesus is. Let's take a look real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 15. We're going to race through this real quick because we don't have a lot of time, but I just wanted to give you just a little smattering of what, what God has in mind. Deuteronomy chapter 15, the first eight verses, is Moses preparing the people to go into the land. This is to the Jews. But he's, he's giving them a mentality that he wants them to have as it relates to the poor. And this is what he says. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debt. That's kind of cool, isn't it? 
And this is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor, and he shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. For from a foreigner you may exact it, but you, your hand shall be released from whatever is yours with your brother. However, there shall be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess. If only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I am commanding you today. For the Lord your God shall bless you as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in your land which the Lord has given you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and you shall generously lend him sufficiently for his need. Okay. What are some principles we pick out of that? What are some principles? Well, one is Jesus says, I, I don't want any poor. There shall be no poor among you. That's the heart of God, that there be no poor. But he, but he puts in an if clause. And it's, if you will obey all these things, there will be no poor. Well, what's the conclusion? Obviously, we have the poor. Jesus said later on, the poor will be with you always. So obviously, we were disobedient to what Jesus wanted to do because he saw this, this process of these people sharing everything they had so that the poor were eliminated. Then he goes on and he says, another principle, every seven years, I want you to forgive debt. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? I would get an eight-year loan on everything. <laughs> Pretty cool. Let me ask you a question because this, is, this is kind of affects our culture. Um, what do you think the chances are that every seven years it was the same people that had to have their debt forgiven? Pretty high? I'd say it's pretty high. Does Jesus ever say, I want you to give them three forgivenesses of the seven years and then I want you to cut them off? No. It's unlimited. But the American mentality is, I will give to you as long as you're going to do the right stuff with it. Am I alone in this? If you see a guy who's an alcoholic and he's asking for money, what's your propensity to give him money? Zero. Because you know if you give him money, he's going to buy more alcohol and he's going to do it again. Same with a drug addict, same with all the rest of them. Wow. So what Jesus is saying here is I want you to do it regardless of what got them there. Is that, is that right? Is that what it's saying? Okay. So my obligation is to be about giving, not determining if they're worthy. Because that's really what we're doing. Are you worthy of me giving you money? This question was asked of John Piper. There's a conference going on, young seminary students, and seminary student says, uh, stewardship, professor. I really believe in stewardship, and I only want to give to people that will do the right thing with it. Is that correct? John Piper said, hmm. He says, aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't treat you that way with forgiveness? Do we always do the right thing with our forgiveness? No. I may lie. I ask Jesus for forgiveness, and he goes, ah, you're going to lie again tomorrow, the next day. Nope. 
What does Jesus do? He forgives them. See, the heart of, of us in the church is not to determine if people are worthy, but to be freely giving because that's what Jesus wants us to do because that's his heart. What happens on the other side, that's his call. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when Jesus is talking through the apostle Paul, Paul says, I, have, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. He says again the next verse, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. And then the next verse says, and he who plants and he who waters is nothing. God gives the growth. Whose responsibility is it to what that person does with the money? My responsibility? No. It's their responsibility. Let them stand before God with your money or with his money. Not my job. Would that change the way you perceive the world? Changes mine. Big time. Big time. Well, what are some other principles that came out here? Um, well, we'll move on from that. Oh, no, this is a good one. He says to the poor guy, he says, if a poor man approaches you, I want you to give him whatever's in your pocket. Is that what it says? What does it say? Give to him whatever his need is, whatever it is. Whoa. So what determines what I give him is not based upon what I have, but based upon what his need is. Man, that changes a lot of things, doesn't it? First of all, it determines that I, I don't just hand money out the window. I actually park my car. I get out. I sit down with a brother. I put my arm around him and say, tell me how you got here. Tell me how you got here. Then let's see if we have a path out. We have to sit down and have a conversation. We have to have a relationship that says, this, this is the way, brother, you're going to get out. And I'm going to help you do that. Now, whether he does that or not, that's between him and the Lord. But our obligation is to respond to the need of the individual. Wow. That would change a whole lot. Later on, Moses writes about the gleaning principle. Remember gleaning? It's an agrarian culture. So if I had a, if I had a bunch of wheat and I, and I harvested out the center, I lived, leave the outer edges for the poor to come and get it on their own. If I grow grapes, grapes that I drop, I leave there and I let the poor come and get them. So there was a whole system that those that had left a portion for those that did not have in order for them to get what they needed. But the system was set up so that there would be this, this way for the poor to have income and for them not to be victimized. Wow. What our culture looked like if we were different than that. What are some other principles? Not out of this, but let me look at a couple others. Just so you know, I'm not, I'm not lying to you here. Isaiah chapter 1. The whole beginning of Isaiah's first chapter is, he's, he's telling them, God is really ticked with you guys. I mean, he is so done with your your festivals and your moons and your celebrations and all that stuff. He's just done with all that religious stuff. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And your heart is far from him, and he's done with that. Then what does he say? He says this at the end of that whole process. He says, this is what repentance looks like, people. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Wow. So it's not just a, I, I, 
asks for forgiveness, but there's an action item to that. And the action item is to take care of those around. There is a social justice that Jesus requires. At the end of Isaiah 58, he says this, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the harmless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Once again, action item. Let me... uh, just blow forward here a little bit. There's a lot more, and if you want more passages, I, w- I would love to, I would love to be able to share with you. But there's a conversation that Jesus has with uh, with an attorney. Those are always entertaining. <laughs> Attorney's probably not his favorite group of people. But this attorney asked Jesus, "How must I be saved?" Jesus says, "What does your law say?" He said, "To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself." Jesus said, "Well, you've said well." Attorney's not satisfied with that, so he presses Jesus even farther, and he says, who is our neighbor? Who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus gives a story, and the story is of the Good Samaritan. Now, you know the story. A guy's leaving Jerusalem, and he, he's going down the road, and all of a sudden he gets taken by thieves. He's robbed. He's beat up. He's put off on the side of the road. A religious man comes out. He sees the guy. He ignores him, and he keeps on walking. The next religious guy, not only does he see him and walk down the road, he goes to the far side of the road so he doesn't have to be affected by it. Now, a Samaritan comes. Now, Samaritans, they were not loved by the Jews at all. In fact, they were enemies. He stops. He goes. He cares for, bandages him up, takes him to a hotel, and says to the innkeeper, whatever he needs, I'll be back in a few days, and and I'll take care of the bill. So get this, the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbors yourself, is what? What's the answer to the question of loving my neighbor? Love the guy next door? No. What Jesus says is, is your neighbor is anyone who is in need while you are on your way. So you climb in your car, you drive between Simi Valley and Thousand Oaks, your neighbor is anybody who's in need that you see while you're on your way. Well, in order for us to be a good Samaritan and not just a religious person, that requires something different, doesn't it? When I get in my car, I pray and I ask Jesus, show me the world of need around me as I go. Also requires that I allow a little more time so that if someone in need is there, I can stop and help them. And it also requires that I have some resource. How would your life change if you really loved your neighbor? How would my life change if I really loved my neighbor? Wow. You know, we ask the question about safety, don't we? Safety. It's not safe to pull off and help a stranger, right? Since when was safety part of the biblical standard? We all say that. I tell you, you know, Haiti is not the safest place in the world, and every parent just about sends a kid, is it safe? No, Well, then I won't send my child. Really? And you think you're going to save your child? You don't save your child. You deceive yourself as a parent if you think you're protecting your children. God protects your kids. And what happens if something happens? Wow. 
maybe your son or daughter may learn more about Jesus. Maybe they may understand this is really a wicked world, and if I don't have Jesus, I'm in big trouble. Mark Batterson has this in his book, and it's a great book called In and Out. If you ever have a chance to read it, this is what he says. A century ago, a band of brave souls began known as one-way missionaries. They purchased single tickets to the mission field without the return half, and instead of suitcases, they packed their earthly belongings in coffins. As they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved, everything they knew, and they knew that they would never return home. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries. He sailed from the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had martyred every missionary before him. Milne did not fear for his life because he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. For 35 years, he lived amongst the tribe and loved them. When he died, the tribe members buried him in the middle of the village and inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? That faithfulness is holding the fort, that playing it safe is safe, that there is any greater privilege than sacrifice, that radical is anything but normal. Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. The complete surrender of your life to the cause of Christ isn't radical, it's normal. It's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. It's time to go all in and all out, pack your coffin. Safe? I don't want to pull over and love my neighbor because it's not safe. Well, it wasn't safe for Jesus. It certainly wasn't safe for the first century church. So why do we think it's safe for us? There's a, um, one of the things that the church in China says is that to finish the gospel across China and, and go into the back door of Jerusalem is our responsibility because Americans, they're not willing to die for their faith anymore. We are. When a crisis happens in a country, the first thing that happens is missionaries are pulled out by the organizations. Chinese say, we're not going anywhere. We're dying here. Wow. Let me close off with this. Matthew chapter 25. It's a great passage. I'm not going to read all the way through it because it'll take too much time, but let's just kind of get the setting. Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse. It's that, it's that place where Jesus begins to talk about the end times. These are the things that are going to happen. And then he closes off the end of chapter 25 with, with what judgment will look like. And he says this, he will separate into two groups, the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. And what determines what place they're in is Jesus gives the criteria. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came and you visited me. Well, the guys, the goats, are going to say, Lord, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or naked or in prison? Because you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Well, the sheep on the other side said, Lord, why are we here? 
Because when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was in prison, you came and you visited me. Now, let's apply that here. What is, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is going to judge us whether we're a believer or not based upon not our belief system, not our theology, but based upon our conduct. Now, I'm not promoting a works theology because, believe me, that's not part of what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying you'll be saved by your works, but he says your works will affirm that you are one of mine. Jesus says when you come to know him, we become a new creation. New heart, new motivation, new mind, everything is different. And Jesus says, as part of that transformation, you will respond to the needs of people around you. And he says here that if you don't, you're not one of mine. He says it's impossible for you to be one of my children and not respond to the needs of people around you. Seriously. Was well, a pastor. I know I've talked to John about it. It scares me to death for the church. Because if we put that requirement over the church, how many people are really saved? That's a scary conclusion, folks. And shame on us. Some of us pastors have, have led people to believe, well, if you put an offering in the plate, the church will do it for you. It's not here. Jesus is going to ask us individually, were you, did you feed, did you clothe, did you visit? If you didn't, there's a problem. Well, we in this country, we've, we've been pulled off the hook somewhat because our government does a lot of that for us. But that doesn't give us an out. It's not the government's responsibility, it's ours. It's the heart of God. It's part of social justice. It's one of the ways that we demonstrate that we're part of the kingdom of God and that Jesus is, is our Messiah. And that we have a relationship with the Father. That we're one of his kids. Wow. So, in conclusion, all the crises that happen in the world, they're evil and they are bad. But they do not escape the sovereign hand of God who is building this kingdom through that process. And as horrible as that is, there's a silver lining, and that is people will be in the kingdom today from what happened in Las Vegas a week ago that wouldn't have been there any other way. Wow, that's awesome. Tragic, but awesome. And what is God's expectation of me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus says, you're all going to stand before me as believers, and I'm going to ask you some questions. And some of those questions were, will be, did you feed? Did you clothe? Did you visit? That scares me to death. I've always been freaked out at tests. That's one that's forever. And the reason I'm in Haiti is because I will not, I will not leave this earth without taking care of the children. I will not. Because I know Jesus is going to ask me that question. 16,000 children will die today. Are you okay with that? What are we going to do about it? It's a lot to do, people. You guys as a church are doing a lot, and I praise you for that. But there's a lot more to do. Let's pray. Father, 
This is a big job. To be about helping those that are suffering in this world that are just unbelievable. Syria, Sudan, the starving children. I mean, everywhere we look, there's crisis. What do you want us to do? Jesus said, I just want you to love your neighbor. While you're on your way, keep your eyes open. Respond to the needs of those around you. That's all I'm asking. Father, your word, we, we love you for your word. We wouldn't know how to change. We wouldn't know what to do if it wasn't for your word, and you've given us some pretty heavy ones today. But I thank you. I thank you for your sovereignty. That in the middle of the horrors of this world, you are building your kingdom. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then you've asked us to be part of the redemptive plan of bringing those suffering people to Jesus. I don't know that I'd trust us knuckleheads with that, but you have. And thank you for including us in your sovereign plan to reach the world for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.